founded CVent in 1999, went public 2013, took private in 2016 in a $1.6 billion deal with Vista doing about 220 million bucks then and it caught bookings today, over 500 million bucks in bookings across 25,000 customers, uh, you know, caught $20,000 ACV on average, approaching 4,000 folks on the team so far, net revenue retention between 100 and 115% offices all over the place. Three acquisitions, very acquisitive now, uh, post kind of the Vista deal after they got fully integrated with Lanyon as they look to continue to scale with more organic growth, which is the main driver, but also acquisitions. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Reggie Agarwal. He's the CEO and founder of Cvent, the leader in meetings, events, and hospitality software. A lawyer by trade, Agarwal founded Cvent in 1999 as a two-person startup with the goal of making meeting planning easier for his peers in the business community. Reggie, are you ready to take us to the top? All right, I'm ready. All right, so 1999, obviously, there's a big event that happens with you guys joining the Vista team in 2016. And then I want to focus most of today's time on where you guys are at today in terms of growing rapidly. But first, for people that maybe have not heard of Cvent and what you do, high level, what are you guys focused on? Yeah, so what Cvent does is we help um, people manage, market, and organize events. So we give them different software tools like online event registration or a mobile app. Um, or things to help them check in people when you've gone to a large conference and you have 5,000 people in line, how to process them through the check-in line. So we do anything that helps organizations, again, manage, market, and organize events. The other side, we also help them find venues. So we have a kind of Expedia for meeting planners site where you can go and find any venue. We have about 200,000 venues where you can find a the right location for your actual event. So those are our kind of two products. So the event cloud, hospitality cloud, those are still kind of your main two cohorts. Great. So 2013, you grow the company, you end up going public. 2016, I think your your last kind of quarterly update was 56.7 million-ish, and so 224 million-ish run rate. Vista comes in and buys you for 1.6. Quickly, how'd you and Robert meet? So um, I actually met, first I met Brian Sheff. So Brian is the the co-founder and the president. And so we actually met at a uh, at a, one of the banking conferences at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Morgan Stanley took us public, so they have their you know banking conferences. So I was there, met Brian for the first time there. I met some of their other Vista partners before, and frankly, we, we weren't looking at selling, and it was just kind of we met each other because they owned our largest competitor, so we had a lot to talk about. Which was who? They owned a company called Lanyon, and Lanyon was an aggregation of about twenty different companies that kind of merged together. Uh, to, uh, you know, we were number one in terms of size, they were number two, and uh, they merged a bunch of competitors to take us on. And so we had a lot to talk about. <laughs> when you guys, when they eventually kind of convinced you guys to come in, what were, were you guys now the new hub or did they buy, they bought the spokes first and then the hub or were you smaller in terms of joining? So in the beginning, they actually bought Lanyon, which was bigger than Cvent. Okay. And at the time. Four years. Yeah. And so then what happened is that we ended up becoming bigger and so what they're basically on the wrong horse. Mm-hmm. And so that, so that's basically what was the genesis of driving why they bought us. Cause they love the, 
the meetings industry is a massive industry. There, a new study just came out 30 days ago, and $1 trillion, $1 trillion is spent on meetings and events globally. It's yeah. big. It's, it's, it's equal to the same size of consumer electronics globally, if you believe yeah. it. Bigger than the GDP of every country except 17. <laughs> this is meetings and events. That's, a, that's a good metric. That's a good yeah. metric. We just we, we recently, about four months ago, had actually six months ago, had Ryan on the show with Qualtrics. And one of the things he yeah. told us was kind of why and how they were thinking about potentially going public. Obviously, that then created a forcing function to get, uh, obviously, the folks to come in and pay, you know, billions and billions to kind of, you know, take them out beforehand. I imagine there was some circling of the waters on your end as well in 2013 when you announced. And that was obviously a high leverage point for you. Why did you ultimately decide, you know what? We're going to call the bluff. We're going to go ahead and go public. We're going to prove it out instead of taking, I'm sure you had many big deals on the table to stay private. Yeah. So when we were, you know, considering public, you do have people come out of the woodworks um, to, to look at us. But we were very interested. We believed long term in the business. We thought we were kind of in early innings. So frankly, you just decide that we think going public is, the, is a better outcome for our shareholders. But, you know, more importantly um, than just that, it was the best thing for a whole ecosystem, which is our employees, our customers, and our shareholders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had people approach us, but we decided that going public was the right thing for us. And un- un- unfortunately, we didn't get 20 times revenue like Qualtrics <laughs> as an offer, because maybe that would change your mind if you get that kind of valuation. Yeah. Um, uh, Why did you get that valuation? So, you know, it's, a, it's interesting. Um, you know, I've, I've actually met Ryan several times through the Morgan Stanley Banking Conference. It's a different one they do for private companies that I go to now. And so um, it's, it's a little, you know, look, they have a great company. They're growing fast. They're strategic. Um, but still, it was, a, it was a shocker for everyone because we've all been in this industry for a long time. And um, they're, they're a great company, but they must have done a, a heck of a job in terms of positioning themselves strategically for SAP. Mm-hmm. Because it's probably the highest valuation that I've heard of in terms of multiples for a company of their scale. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what the, the metric is, but so, so, you know, when we end up going public, um, you always look at both, you know, uh, you always look at staying private, going public, and of course acquisition, but that was the right thing for us. And it ended up being the right thing because as an organization, we matured a lot. When you go public, it changes you as a company because um, you learn to be much more disciplined. You have to be able to forecast better. You just get a tighter grip of your business. You get different sets. You build different sets of muscles, you know, just like in life. And, and it's great when you start exercising different muscles because it makes you better and stronger. And that's what it did for us. In 2016, again, the last quarter you reported, how do you about a $224 million run rate? And you also said in a, in a press release around that time, you know what? We've got plans to triple this bad boy by 2020. Well, we're getting closer to 2020. How's that coming along? Yeah, so I think our press release, it didn't say triple by 2020. I think it was over a five-year period. Uh, okay. But like my investors, whatever n- number we say, they always take a year or two off of it. Uh, so, but, uh, and, but then, no. and then leak it to the press and then say, Reggie, this is what you said, Reggie. This is- yeah, that's right. Uh, I was saying, good try, but it doesn't quite work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we closed our deal in 16. And so um, we, we have more than doubled already as an organization. So give you a sense, we were about 18 or 1,900 employees. Um, this year will end the year. We're starting to approach 4,000 employees. Um, and in terms of revenue, we've more than doubled. Um, yeah, so you're north of 500 million at this point in ARR. Yeah. So in terms of, we call bookings, um, bookings you know, yeah. ACV bookings, everyone has, you have ARR, you have revenue, you have diff- different metrics. We call our bookings. Then that's the number we, we, we focus on because that's more of your future growth. Revenue tends to look at your past. What we've seen is the most important indicator of how you're doing the future is bookings because then that's that shows your future, your current work and your future work versus your past. What work. does that mean, Reggie? Though educate us. So, I mean, is that you're taking sure. essentially last month or last twelve months, and it's an extrapolation forward, or how? 
No, this is what bookings does. So let's say you close a $12,000 contract in February, right? Uh, or let's use in November. So you put 12,000 on the sales board. If it's revenue, you get one twelfth of that. Each month. Each month. So basically the reason that matters is let's say 10 months ago we had, we did, we did 20,000. You're getting the benefit of the past work to get into the rev for your revenue in the future because your past performance is reflecting in the future. Bookings is what you did that month. So you get a real good indicator that we closed, you know, a $12,000 deal this month. And so then I know how we're performing really now. And then I can predict my future now because I know I have another 11, 12 that's going to hit next year. So we view bookings as a better number of your current performance. And it gives me the leading indicator of my future performance. Revenue is past performance. So that's why we love bookings. And so- so we are over, you know, we'll hit over half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let me repeat that back to you to make sure I understand it. So if you look at the past just 30 days, you're essentially looking at bookings and recognized bookings in that slice of time. And then yep. you're obviously one twelfth of that happening for next 12 months each month. That, that number is over 500 million bucks is what you're saying. Well, actually, I'm taking our bookings for the whole past year. So I'm taking our whole year. Okay. Yeah. So re- reverse. We're not looking forward bookings. I'm looking backwards. Yep. So basically we'll collect more than half a billion in cash this year. How yep. does that that, that's great. The reason I ask, um, you know, I've had a bunch of Vista CEOs on the show. Uh, you know, Bill was interesting with Media Ocean, different business model. He's really envious, I think, probably of you trying to move more to a SaaS model and they're more of a transaction kind of ad spend play. And then, you know, the numerator yeah. folks, but more importantly, I had Andre on with Ping Identity. And he said, yeah, one of the things we're actually doing is actually getting more aggressive with dollar based CAC. You know, when the acquisition happened, we were at $1.20 for a new dollar of AR. Now they're pushing up to $1.50, $60, uh, because, and his thesis made sense. He said, basically, if you have confidence in your cohort data, the person that can spend the most to get the customer wins. Uh, how do you feel about driving dollar-based CAC up? I mean, I think, um, I think that's one metric. I mean, look, we've been, we've been profitable as a company. We're unusual because, as you know, as our startup store, we almost went bankrupt back in you know, 2001 and two. So we became profitable um, in 2004. And so um, our margins are unusual uh, for a SaaS company, especially I'm talking about back then when we were smaller, most of the SaaS companies that are growing fast, which we were, are always losing money, like 95% of them. But because we're entrepreneur led, we didn't raise any money between 2000 and 2013. For 13 years, we didn't raise any capital. We relied on ourselves. So it changes the way you look at a lot of metrics. CAC is one metric. And I think what I know Andre real well, and I think what he says is fair. Um, you know, that's one metric. I think some companies though, um, and just in general, they focus too much on too much on CAC because that that I don't think they're necessarily striking the right balance. In our view, in terms of CAC is CAC is a big driver because look, we have a massive space. We're the market leader right now. We want to continue what we call suck the oxygen out of the room in terms of being the strongest player. Um, and so you want to forward invest in marketing and other investments, which we do. But I still think that you know I think it's important to obviously balance that with making sure that you have a healthy amount of profits. And it's not because of the profits, it's to show that you can run a healthy business. It focuses on discipline that say, hey, I can have X percent, let's just use a number. And our numbers are north of this, frankly, but substantially north of this. Let's just say you want 10% profit. You, you, it shows a discipline that when you keep a 10% margin, it just shows that I can, I, it forces you to think, how do I can build this business making 10% or 20% or whatever? Too many companies, they're losing money and they never become profitable. 15, 20 years later. And to me, at some point, you got to pay the piper. Now, the way they pay the piper a lot, they get out. They sell the company and some other person takes it over and they deal with it. But my view is, is that to, to run a long-term business, you have to build the discipline and the culture to make money. 
because it's a very different discipline. Like I'll give an example. Like I still fly economy. A lot of people say, why do you fly economy? Is that, is that, is that, is that worth your time? And I'm like, it's not about worth my time. It's building a democratized system in the company where if I fly economy, nobody else better ask to fly business. Right. Cause, and so, cause you create that culture. And so we, to, to, once you have a culture, where everyone flies business. How do you take it down to flying economy? You can't. Hard. Yeah. And yeah. And so that's why to me, CAC is one example, which is important, but there's a variety of other metrics and growing fast is one thing, but balancing that is to me, what we've seen is the best way to sustain a business. And, you know, we're 20, almost 20 years in, and I believe we built a business that could certainly last another 20 years and 50 years. And because we built a, a business that grows fast, but is also at the same time profitable. Mm-hmm. and consistently for the last decade. Reggie, let me try and bring this down actually to a customer level. So 500 million plus in bookings, 25,000 customers, that puts average kind of ACV maybe in the 20K-ish range. In order to acquire that new $20,000 customer, how aggressive are you willing to be in terms of payback period? So, you know, we, you know it's the lifetime, it's the LTV. That's the, the, the biggest term. We look at the lifetime value of the customer um, and that's a big driver of what we do. So it really depends on the type of business and it depends strategically in what that segment. So there's, no, well, look, I don't have a particular number that we use for a particular segment. So for example, when you get enterprise customers, you know that the LTV is longer because once an enterprise customer buys your our enterprise software, they tend to stick for a long time and they tend to have a lot of upsell opportunities because you take them global. A mid-sized customer is a little different. So again, we don't really, when we, when we run our business on, on, on looking at the LTV or the CAC or whatever it may be. Um, uh, we don't have a particular number that we run because it depends on the market. If, if it's like we're willing to spend a lot more, for example, we're penetrating Europe. We just opened an office in Germany, Dubai in the last month. So we're willing to spend a lot more for a customer there because we're building our brand and that's worth a lot. And, uh, but then places like North America, where it's more mature, where our brand's really well worth it, then we want to really want to balance that with making it profitable because we're not worrying about being the strategic leader in that, in that market. So I know I'm, I'm not avoiding giving a dollar figure. It's no, no. It's, I, and I actually read you what I'm actually interested in is not a dollar figure. It's actually, you know, the reason I ask about payback period, there's a lot of companies with really he- healthy LTV to CAC ratios, but if your payback is three years, you get yeah. a huge cash gap and there's a major issue there. You've very much avoided that. So what I'm actually yeah. trying to get to is how you're managing short or longer payback periods in new or mature markets, right? To make sure you guys are always in a healthy cash position. And if I heard you correctly, what you're saying is where you're expanding in Dubai, you're happy to be a little bit more patient and, and invest, you know, profits from North America into yeah. a new market to get a stakehold there. That's exactly right. And we don't look, we don't, I'm going to be very candid with you. We don't sit there and slice every number. It, some of it is, and I don't want to say it's gut, but you just look at the numbers sure. and you see, We've done this for so long that we know when we acquire a customer, we have certain channels that we do that, meaning our marketing channels. And, um, and of course, we know what our sales cycle and sales cost is. In the end, we know what our renewal rates are. In, in the end, it's, it's a holistic program. It's not even done by looking at that because there's so many factors that, that, that you have to look at. And in the end, what we know is our core business, it's very profitable in the long term, when you keep a customer on board and right, and once they've stuck with you for a year or two, you're going to have them for the next 20 years. How effective are you guys there? What's, what's revenue churn in terms of a gross basis annually? So we have over 100%. You know, there's, look, there's different ways you can measure churn. Net revenue retention is over 100%? Yes, net revenue is over 100%. How far, um, though? I'd say like world class is 130, 140. So it's um, 130, yeah, 130, is incredible. Um, you might come in with a $10,000 contract because you've only sold them a little bit and then expand it to 40, right? And then you could say that's a 400% 
you know, so there's a lot of what I call tricks that you can play because you're a public company. There's different ways you slice it. Um, you're right. The 130 is is world world class and depends how mature you are. The more mature you are, I think it's a little tougher to get to the 130, 140 than when you're newer. So we're 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 certainly north of 100. Um, we're not approaching 115, 120. So I'll just kind of just say that's that. Fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. So call it 100, 100% to 115, 120%. That, that's fair. And by the way, obviously, it's harder to do at scale. <laughs> These are percentages, yeah. right? So yeah. makes sense. I'll be clear. I'm not saying 150 or 20. I said not not 115 or 120, but not 100. So yeah, yeah you're, you're in, in between those, right? Yeah, exactly. You're giving yeah. a vague range. Which yeah. totally, that's helpful. Plus, but not, not 115. Yeah, perfect. Uh, let me dive into kind of another area here. A lot of people don't understand how private equity work. There's a lot more private equity firms popping up. I'd say Vista is one of the most successful. That's why I've told my research team, go book every Vista CEO on the show. Um, help my audience understand how private equity firms make money. Sure. So first, just give you a little plug on Vista. Vista is, has now had the highest IRR of any private equity firm in North America. What is it? it was 21, they, 22? Uh, no, they're they're in the 30s. Okay, this is over this is over 16 years. Mm. They're right now about to conclude raising a 16 plus billion dollar fund. Um, they're about to close it, you know, very in shortly. And uh, this is off their 11 billion, and before that, I believe it was seven billion. And all they do is invest in business software companies. That's the distinction. So the raw number, you know, I believe they're the largest. Silver Lake has a, probably about a 10, 15, or 12 or 15 billion. But forget that. From business software, there's no one close to that. Yep. Other, They're the other fourth people. largest software company in the world if you just look at right. revenue. Yeah, that's exactly right when you combine all the companies. So that's kind of data point one. They're the number one franchise right now. And they're kind of an emerging brand because they kind of came out of nowhere. That's number one. Uh, the second thing I just, it's, it's, I'm going to give us ourselves a pat on the back. We were actually, we got company of the year for Vista. Out of their 54 companies, we were voted their, you know, the company of the year um, because I think we built a great business. And, Andre, uh, Bill, you guys hear that? You got to come back on in a year and yeah. tell Reggie you won that award. I would love for Andre and Bill know them both well <laughs> about that. And of course, I'll tell them that they have to take us on again next year, though. <laughs> a little healthy, healthy brotherly competition. Yeah. competition there. How do they make money, um, though? What's that? How, tell us how, again, tell us how private equity so firm makes money. Private equity makes money. So, so, so here's how, how it works. And it's, this is very interesting because um, I learned a lot from this process. So, so let's say Vista bought us for $1.65 billion is yep. what they paid for us. So what private equity companies do, I'm going to keep the numbers just real simple to keep the numbers. So let's pretend they actually bought us for $1.65 billion. They actually write a check for a billion. Okay? And then there's $650 million difference. How do they fund that? There's three ways. One, they get debt. So let's pretend they took out $500 million debt. Right, because the reputation, people are willing to give them debt at let's say seven percent. Yep. Then we had money in the bank. We had one hundred and thirty million dollars cash in our balance sheet. They use that to buy our own company. Right. So that's the second. The third is people roll over. Like I invested back my proceeds because I was, you know, the largest shareholder at Cvent, and um, I put my money back into the company. Some of it, so they don't have to actually buy my money because I'm reinvesting it. So basically, only right, sorry, just to be clear there. So if you own 13% of the company at the time that this happened, what you're saying is you maybe only cashed out, maybe like a secondary, like three, four, five, whatever, some percent, you left the other one back in the company. That's exactly right. So to, let's just use a simple numbers because I like numbers as illustration. So pretend they bought us for one point, well, they bought us for 1.65 billion. Pretend I, pretend I own 10%, let's just say. Sure. So that's 165 million. I could have said, I'm going to roll half of it in the company and take half of it and take it in my pocket. This is a so discount for them. Exactly. Now I, I don't, they don't have to fund the 80 million because I'm funding it. So they write a check for a billion. 
you fund it by debt, people rolling money back over, there's cash on the balance sheet, but in the end they put a billion in, right? Then what happens, let's say you sell the company later on, let's say five years from now, they want to triple their investment. That's their thesis. We want to triple the company. So then people think to triple the company, you have to do three times 1.65 billion. That's not the number because they put a billion dollar equity check. So how do they triple their billion dollars essentially? Because they use debt. So what happens if let's just say they sell for 5 billion? First, they have to pay back the debt. And I'm going to keep it simple. Pretend they took 650 million debt. Just I'll keep it simple. A billion equity, 650 million debt. You pay 650 million. Now that leaves you 4.35 billion. Oh, and the interest, and the interest on the debt. But you're paying your interest through the year. Okay, got it. Your free cash. So just pretend that's being paid. So now you have, and I know this is complicated. So you have $5 billion they buy you for. First, you have to write a check to pay the debt back. So now there's 4.35 billion left, right? Now you've taken that billion to 4.35 billion. So you 4.3 extra money. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So you don't have to, to triple your money. You don't have to get to 5.3 billion. It could be a lot less than that. Reggie, so, you really know these numbers. It's almost like you're reading off a pro forma. Adobe's going to buy you for 5 billion. Is that what's about to happen? Well, first it'd be a lot higher than 5 billion. So I <laughs> want to get the number five in anyone's head. But, uh, uh, but, 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 but no, kidding aside, um, the way the private equity companies make money, just like everyone thinks they do, but they leverage debt. That's where I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand debt. I never took debt. I was afraid of debt because of when we almost went bankrupt. I was like, don't live, don't you know, don't pass, don't, don't ski past your, don't, you know, don't go past your skis. Right. Yep. And, um, so that was kind of what our view was. I, I think I made a mistake as an entrepreneur, not leveraging debt, um, because you can get a lot out of it. Um, non diluted. what I've seen is private equity firms have ma- exactly right. So they master two things Buy a good company that's undervalued maybe because for whatever reason, and then you think they have strong operational uh, fundamentals and meaning market size and so forth. And then the third thing, leverage debt. Between those three combinations, that's why the ROIs are so high on PE and Vista has mastered it. They've never lost money in any acquisition in their history, which no company can say. And they only make the money at the liquidation at the end. There's no operating distributions happening as they go along. There's some companies that do that. Vista, we're on growth. So what happened with Vista, they used to invest in companies that, you know, EBITDA was a little more focused. Now their focus is high growth. So we were the first company that they acquired that was high growth. So even though they closed Marketo actually before us, you're going to have Steve on the, and I was a board member of, of, uh, of, of, I was on the board of Marketo. So Steve's a great entrepreneur. But what happened was we were the first one. It took us longer to close our deal because of some antitrust things, but it was us, Marketo, Ping, and then now they've been buying a bunch. Datto, they just, um, they just um, bought uh, Sonny's company. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. Um, uh, for $2 billion, uh, forget the name of the company. Uh, but the point is, is that now with the high growth companies that they're buying, um, it's a very different thesis. So they don't take money back. They want to invest it back to grow faster. Mm-hmm. So for example, they've never, they don't want a dividend. They said, put that money and plow it back into the business because we want to go faster. So that's been a great marriage because we have a very similar thesis, which is massive market, continue to grow fast and invest in it. We want to have a balance of profits, but we've, you know, for example, this year we're taking our profits down compared to the prior year because it's such a great opportunity. What's the point of having cash on your balance sheet? Yep. You Fred, you're, talking about Sun, you're talking about Sunny at Aptio? Yes, Aptio. Yeah, yeah. Last two questions here because we're out of time. Um, when I think about meetings, digital, physical, online, in-person, whatever, I, you know, we had Eric Wan on recently with Zoom. We're using Zoom right now. Interesting company. Any, any chats with him to buy them? For us to buy Zoom? Yep. 
no. Zoom is a very, very successful company. It's a different business. We're in more face-to-face meetings. We're on a Zoom right now. So shout out to them. We use Zoom at, C- at CBET. But Zoom is more for like you can do one-on-one meetings, small meetings. That's right. We, we tend to do face-to-face and more what you call real meetings, like a, what you call more of a traditional meeting. Conventions. Not meetings, not conventions only. It can be small meetings. I don't want to limit us to conventions and big okay. ones. We Twenty-person events, all the way up to we do, you know, help in Dreamforce, AWS. There are large conferences of 90,000, whatever, hundred thousand. But the point is, is that Zoom is a different is a different delivery mechanism. We we would help doing what we call hybrid events, where you you know when you do a physical event and you webcast it, you know, to try to capture it if you're not going to be at the physical event. But that's very different. Now, would we ever do something like that? You'd never say no. But Zoom is a different category, and they're they're a tremendous company. So I would say the answer is. We are not looking at buying Zoom. Um, and by the way, I would venture to say Zoom is, is is worth significant money, maybe even starting to approach. I'm just speculating in the, you know, the high single digit numbers because they're a great company. Yeah, yeah. You know, Eric's a tough cookie and uh, he came on and shared a little bit on the show that, you know, I would say they're north of 150 at this point in terms of AR and definitely pushing a billion dollar in terms of valuation. So smart guy, good company. Last question for you. Uh, Vista, first two moves that you did post acquisition were what? So after they acquired us, um, when you say, what Strategic. are the first Yeah, so, so here's the answer that Andre gave, or uh, that the numerator CEO gave. He said, Nathan, it was amazing how much money they immediately saved by taking 27 instances of Salesforce and merging them into one. And it, it had like $2 million in, in like cash flow immediately. So, and the other, uh, Andre talked about how they restructured the sales team around a Vista playbook, sure. which was very, very, you know, we learned a lot from that. So just like first two moves you made, pricing increase, and what, what was the strategy? Sure. The first one I would say is that because we're a public company, we're so focused on making sure every quarter we did what we needed to. Literally, the first thing they did is they gave us a, a take a deep breath and not worry about quarterly numbers, but more look at what are we going to look like three to five years from now. That dr- drove everything. So forget one like particular technical thing. That in itself was like, hey, take a deep breath. Don't worry about what next quarter, the next quarter is after that. We don't really care. What we focus on is what's the three to five year goal. Mm-hmm. And then now build your business. So once we did that on a strategic let me give you the tactical uh, outcome of that. We, 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 inter- we, we, we put Oracle in for our financial system because we were running on basically you know, a, another system that wasn't built for scale because you know, our goal is we will hit a billion in revenue over X years, right? That's what's going to happen with Cvent. And we're very, very open about declaring that to our employees and stuff. And so the question is, what do you need to do to hit a billion in revenue? What are the systems you need in the core systems? Let's say that's an example of a tactical. So another one that's, let's say, strategic is, you know, what do you need to, let's, let's invest more in your sales and marketing. Let's say we gave you an extra $10 million. What would you do with that? And the third one, I'll just show you acquisitions. So when we, when, as, soon as, they, as soon as they acquired us, they owned our biggest competitor. So we spent a year integrating that. But now in the last six months, we bought three companies. And Vista is, is just machines on that. They bought so many companies um, and they're experts at us that they have been able to give us such a wide reach. So we bought three companies in the last six months. Next year, we're going to, you know, we're going to continue buying acquisitions is a large part of our story. The biggest driver, of course, is organic growth. But those are kind of two or three things. Who, on a who sold the social tables acquisition to who? Did you have to bring it to them or they brought it to you? Oh, social tables. We actually knew them since the beginning because they're in DC and we've been years. Exactly. They're in DC. We're McLean, but they've brought tons to us, but it's not just bringing deals to us, which is helpful. It's the credibility they bring. Whenever a company's being represented by a banker, they know when Vista's involved, that when they say something, they have to deliver, right? And it just gives you a lot more credibility. And frankly, we move it much. One thing Vista's really good at, 
they look at something, once they like it, they move at speed. And we've learned to do that. So, and so that's just an example. But a lot of what we call best practices they brought to us. And so it's been a great relationship. Yep. All right, Reggie, your wife's there. I got to let you go. Otherwise, she's going to come after me. Last five questions, very quick. Number one, favorite business book. So um, worst title in the history, but I think the best book I've ever read by far is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People because it affects your personal life and your business life. And it's just fundamentals. And I love fundamentals. That's what I've learned about running a business. It's all about the fundamentals. Number two, who's your, not besides obviously you, who's your favorite Vista CEO? Um, uh, my favorite Vista CEO, Robert Smith, of course. <laughs> no, no, no. One of the portfolio companies. Who are you learning the most from right now? I, I'll tell you, I learned a lot from Steve Lucas because it's Silicon Valley based. Steve came, he was president of SAP Enterprise, was an executive VP at Salesforce. For me, I was a lawyer. Then I started Cvent. I haven't been so close to a CEO like that, but being a board member gives you a whole different perspective. But I learned a lot from Steve, and that was one of the reasons I love being on Marquette's board. And look, they're a West Coast company. We're an East Coast company. They do things differently than the way we do, and I think we can learn from each other. We're a little more conservative, you know, a little, little, little different way of doing things. But Steve Lucas really got to know him well, and uh, I thought he did a great job. Number four here, Reggie. How many hours of sleep do you get every night? Um, so probably on average about six and a half to seven. Okay, that's pretty good. And uh, obviously, you got your wife there married. Any kiddos? Uh, I have three kids, a four, a six, and an 11-year-old. Ooh, busy man. And how old are you? Uh, so I am 49, but I probably look 31. <laughs> 30 <laughs> years young, right? 30 years young. All right, take us home here. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? So I would say something that I've learned, and I'm glad I learned it, which is if you give and give and give, you'll get tenfold back. That's really been my philosophy, and I've seen that. Uh, that's what Kami gave me. The, I started a nonprofit. And that nonprofit is what gave me the idea of Cvent. I didn't start the nonprofit with the idea of starting a business, but I got the idea of meeting planning because I was a nonprofit organizing events. And then I found a pain point and I said, hey, I got to create the aspirin. And so, but that was an outcome of, of, a, of a, something of creating a nonprofit, which you would never think that would lead to a multi-billion dollar company. Um, so what I've learned is anything you do with people and ideas or whatever, if you give, 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 you'll always receive 10x back, but you can't yeah. expect Guys, there you go. Give, give, give without expectation. You will get more than 10x back. Coming from Reggie, founded Cvent in 1999, went public 2013, took private in 2016 in a $1.6 billion deal with Vista, doing about 220 million bucks then, and it caught bookings today, over 500 million bucks in bookings across 25,000 customers, uh, you know, caught $20,000 ACV on average, approaching 4,000 folks on the team so far, net revenue retention between 100 and 115% offices all over the place. Three acquisitions, very acquisitive now, uh, post kind of the Vista deal after they got fully integrated with Lanyon as they look to continue to scale with more organic growth, which is the main driver, but also acquisitions. Reggie, thanks for taking us to the top. All right, Nathan, good summary. <laughs>